All right, so Psalm 37 is where we're going to be tonight. And I'm going to go through the first uh, 11 verses. And then I'm going to jump into a discussion slash looking up what the Bible says about the millennium. And I'll explain how I get there. You might think that's an odd segue, but uh, I think it makes sense. So, uh, But first, what I want you guys to think about is a Christian worldview. And that's how I want to start off. So um, a worldview is how you view things that are all around. So everybody that's around is... Uh, faced with the same things, and how you interpret those things then is made up basically of your worldview. So we talk about a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview, uh, and you basically have to look at the world around and answer these four questions, and they're pretty simple. The first one is, where did we come from? What is the origin of the world and human beings and everything that we see around us? Uh, So the first one is origin. The second one is meaning. What is the meaning to life? Right? Everybody has to answer that question. Christians, people that are secular, uh, everybody has to account for that. And then the third and fourth one is what we're going to sort of look at tonight. The third one is morality. Why do we do what we do? And again, everybody has to look around and answer that question. And for the Christian, it's very simple. We have a biblical foundation. We have truth that lays out why we do what we do. And tonight we're going to look at being meek. That's one of the things that we're going to look at and why we do that. And then the fourth question is destiny. Where is all of this headed? Um, And so the four questions are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And everybody has to answer those four questions. And a Christian can answer those questions consistently in a way that makes sense and is non-contradictory. And I don't know of another worldview out there that can do that. Um, And to me, the exciting thing, even about how things are progressing in our world today, is everything that seems to be happening that is seemingly catching people off guard fits perfectly within a Christian worldview. Uh, And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So... Psalm 37, verse 1, says this, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So let's stop there and just kind of back up here and look at there's some super practical things here that David is laying before us. Uh, The first thing he says there in verse 1 is he says, do not fret, Uh, which literally means, and I like this, don't get all worked up. That's how you can interpret fretting. Uh, If you're under 50, we're probably not as familiar with that word, but don't get fired up or don't get worked up. That's how you could say uh, maybe a better translation of that. And that's certainly applicable in our day uh, that we shouldn't be fretting. We shouldn't be getting all worked up about the things that we see around us. And here's why. Because someone who walks with the Lord has a larger perspective. Look at verse 2. 
Don't be envious of the workers of iniquity. Don't get fired up when you see this. 4, verse 2, they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. So there's a larger perspective, right? We understand that people ultimately don't get away with it. They might be getting away with something now. Ultimately, though, nobody's going to get away with it. It says, all things are open and naked before the one with whom we must have to do. So God sees everything. He hears everything. So the author here starts by saying, uh, don't fret. Don't get so worried and so fired up and so worked up thinking that somebody's going to get away with something. It doesn't happen. God is in control. And now instead, he gives us some positive things to think about in the meantime or some some better ways to go. So the first thing he says is trust in the Lord and do good. So trust means to put your full weight upon or to lean or to depend on those things. Uh, so no doubt in the last couple months, part of our trust uh, maybe was not necessarily shaken, but just tested, right? And we realized, am I depending on the Lord or am I, you know, some of the circumstances around me are changing, seem uncertain, so to trust means to put your weight fully upon and depend on. And, and he says, and do good, but trust in the Lord. Put your weight on him. Put your faith in him. And the reason that we can do that is because it says in 2 Corinthians that we don't just look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are unseen. Because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are are eternal, right? So we know there's things around us right now that are happening, and we also know there's things around us that we can't see, but we know there's a future that is eternal. So there are both physical things happening, spiritual things happening. So a Christian exercises his faith and trust in moments like this, and he says, and do good. And I just thought, this is a great exhortation. There is a tendency uh, in me and maybe in you uh, in times like this where we can start to get jaded or start to get worn down or start to get focused on whether it's the circumstances or whether it's ourselves or we just get so caught up in our thoughts. And I love what David here says, just don't forget to just do good. There are multiple times every single day where there's going to be opportunities for you to just do good, to just be kind to someone, to just whatever it might be, to return a phone call or to do something for someone, whether it's little or big. He says here, trust in the Lord, and but don't get jaded. Make sure you do good. And then he says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And the idea of dwelling means, obviously, to be there, to be living, to feeding is a daily exercise. And the idea is, is that growth comes naturally, it comes slowly, it comes in seasons, there's a time here that goes by. And so he says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And you guys remember the stories in the Old Testament of Abraham and Isaac, different people who, when they ran into stressful situations, they left. Abraham went down to Egypt. Here, David says, no, dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness. And then verse 4 might be familiar to you, if the other ones haven't been. He says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, this is one of those ones that's important to interpret correctly, I think. So, and the order is important. He says, delight yourself first, and the Lord will give you the desires of your heart second. And again, in our world right now, there's a million distractions, a million things that can get our attention off. 
And so delighting in the Lord is important. And it means a deliberate redirection of our emotions. To delight obviously means to take pleasure in, right? And so in our world, I don't know what your guys' daily life is like, but there's a million distractions. And he says here, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So it's a deliberate redirection of your emotions. I'm going to delight myself in the Lord. And if you do that, then it says, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I don't think that means that whatever I desire in my heart, he's going to give me. Okay? I think, personally, this means that as I delight in the Lord, he's going to take those desires that come naturally to me, which are mostly sinful and selfish, and he's going to change those into things that he wants. Right? Philippians says he works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, when God wants us to do something, he first puts us a thought in our mind or in our will. We'll call that here a desire, right? And then he, he gives us the ability to do it. So as we delight in the Lord, he's going to give us the desires of our heart. He's going to change our mindset, at least mine, from what seems to be a naturally selfish type person into someone who is more like the Lord, as I delight myself in him. Now, verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So we do our part. We commit and we trust, right? Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. So that's our part in this, that we commit our way to the Lord. We put our trust in him, and he brings it to pass. And he brings our righteousness as the light. And then it says in verse 7, And rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. So waiting here does not mean to be inactive or to be lazy by any means. It means that you're waiting for someone with a purpose. Uh, and it seemed like for a while I was living down at that cell phone waiting lot at the airport. You guys ever been down there? Right? When someone's flying in and you, you need to get there a little bit early, so they give you that lot there where all the flights are coming up. It's been a while since I've been down there uh, now in this situation. But uh, So the idea is when you got down there, you're scanning the board, you're checking the flight, you're, you're waiting, but you're waiting with a purpose. You're not just down there you know, taking a nap or something. And so here he says to rest and to wait and to be patient instead of fretting because of him who is prospering. So instead of getting all fired up, he's saying it's better to wait and to rest and to be at peace. And then in verse 8, he says, And cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. Now, here's where we're going to transition here in verse 9. So look at this. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So twice here, he says that um, 
people are going to inherit the earth. So look at there at the end of verse 9. Those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And then in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, If you look down at verse, let's see, I think it's 22. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. So meekness, he says here, is important. And of course, uh, you probably think to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave. And right at the beginning of the sermon, he gives what we call the Beatitudes, right? Blessed. And the third one says, blessed are the meek, for they what? Anybody finish that? They shall inherit the earth. So Jesus picked up probably from this verse here in that Beatitude. So there's something here about it. So let's think about what this is. Let's think why meekness is brought out by David and by Jesus, what it is, right? So that's going to answer our worldview. Why do we do what we do? Why would we want to be meek? And how does that play into the rest of the Bible? So meekness, um, sometimes in Galatians, it's translated as gentleness. Uh, so it's an inner strength or a patience. An inner strength or a patience, someone who is easy to get along with. It's the opposite of being self-assertive or that person that's just constantly trying to push himself and to get ahead regardless of what happens. Billy Graham said something interesting. He said, what happens within someone is more important than what happens to them. As we walk with the Lord, God's trying to do something inside of us. He's trying to develop a character. Right? So our Christian worldview says meekness is something that's important, an inner strength, uh, and it's a gift of the rebirth. So um, important when you understand 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul there is talking about uh, being born again. And he said, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right? So none of us are meek in the truest sense when we just pop out. Right? None of us are like that. But meekness is something that, as believers, God begins to work inside of us when we're saved, when we're born again, when we have the Spirit of God inside of us. Something genuinely begins to change, and meekness begins to develop. So it means to bring your emotions and your strength under control. It's another, another way of looking at it. So uh, the example is you have a wild horse, who's very strong, can run fast, but is not very uh, effective, right? You take that horse and you train it, you bring that power under control, much more effective. And the idea is the same thing with us. When we're able to control our emotions and who we are internally, we become stronger. And that's the idea here of meekness. It's an inner strength. And you have to be strong internally in order to be meek, in order to purposely let some things go. And that's the idea here. So Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, you would think maybe he says that they would inherit the earth. It's almost like you would expect him to say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit heaven. Right? People who are patient and kind and gentle and filled with the Spirit, they would inherit heaven, and who cares what happens with earth? But very specifically, here and in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So I wanted to think through that a little bit with you tonight. 
and talk about the millennium. So that's how I get from meekness to the millennium. So here's a quick eschatology as we would lay it out, as Pastor Joe would lay it out uh, if he were here, uh, that we would hold to a pre-trib, pre-millennial eschatology. So we believe that what is about to happen at some point in the future would follow this basic pattern, that right now we are in the church age, that people are being born again into the church. At some point, the last Gentile is going to get saved and the rapture is going to take place. That's the, the next thing on the calendar to take place. In the twinkling of an eye, the, the voice of the trumpet, the Lord's going to descend with a shout and we are going to be raptured or taken away. Paul says. That's the next thing that's going to happen. That at some point, now that day specifically doesn't enter it in, but at some point thereafter, 2 Thessalonians says when the restrainer has been removed, the man that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist will come on the scene and he will sign a treaty and he will enter into a seven-year period that Daniel chapter 9 talks about called the Tribulation. And there'll be a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, and uh, there will be a very specific seven-year period that will take place called the Tribulation, the latter half of which is called the Great Tribulation, capital G, capital T, uh, where the Antichrist um, pours out his wrath on the nation of Israel, culminating in the battle of Armageddon. Right? The end of the seven-year period called the Tribulation is the Battle of Armageddon, and at the Battle of Armageddon, and the battle really isn't a very good word there because it's not this huge like Lord of the Rings back-and-forth battle. It just says the Lord comes back and devours him uh, with the, the sword that comes out of his mouth. It's not a battle. It's a, a quick defeat. But the end of the Tribulation culminates in the Second Coming where Christ returns physically to the earth, to the Mount of Olives, uh, and in, ushers in what we call um, here the millennium, which means the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So it says here, the meek will inherit the earth, and that's where I'm going with this. So I want to think through that here. So I'm going to ask you to flip around a little bit. I'm going to try to keep it not too crazy, uh, but I want you to just sort of follow along so that you know where I'm heading with all of this. So why the millennium? Why a thousand-year period on earth? Why not just go right to heaven? Why not just enter into eternity? Why? Here's three reasons. Number one is to reward the faithful. So um, you can turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. So I'm going to give you three reasons why the millennium first, and then I'm going to talk about what's actually taking place in the millennium. And again, all of this is under the context of blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what's going to be taking place in the millennium? First thing is the reward for the faithful. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Actually, you can look at verse 16. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. So when Christ is glorified, 
when he comes into his inheritance, we are going to be co-heirs and glorified together there with him. So that's sort of the theological point. Now turn to Revelation chapter 5 for what it's actually going to look like. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So believers are going to be kings and priests, and we shall physically reign on the earth. Now go to chapter 20. This is when it actually begins. So chapter 19 is the Battle of Armageddon. where at the end of the chapter, the Lord returns, defeats the Antichrist. And chapter 20, verse 1, says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain was in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. And we would treat that completely literally uh, from Romans chapter 8 through to Revelation 5, now to Revelation 20, that we are going to rule and reign for this thousand year period on the earth. So the first reason for the millennium is as a reward to the faithful. And you can go back into some of the letters to the churches there in Revelation 2 and 3, um, specifically to Thyatira. He says, To him who overcomes, Uh, I will give him power over the nations. So the first one is to reward the faithful. The second one, the second reason for the millennium, is to reverse the curse. So you guys remember Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1 and 2, God creates the world. And it says uh, he created everything, and it was good. After day 1, it was good. Day 2, it was good. And it says there in day 7 that he rested, and everything's looking great. And then Genesis 3 starts, and it says that 
the serpent comes to Eve, and you guys know the story. The Bible from there takes a major turn uh, and goes a different direction than you might have thought after just reading Genesis 1 and 2. But God comes there after that, and he places a curse on the man, on the woman, on the serpent, and it says on the creation itself. It says thorns and thistles now are going to be uh, coming out because of the curse that partially affects the uh, the nature itself, God's creation. Romans chapter 8, we don't have time to look at it, but it says the creation itself is groaning, waiting to be delivered by the Lord. So the second reason for the millennium is to reverse that curse. And we're going to look at a couple of these um, verses in a little bit, but nature itself, the animal kingdom, weather itself is all going to go back under the, God's dominion, back under the way that he designed it, similar to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. And we've all sat there and wondered, reading Genesis 1 and 2, man, what would that must have been like? And so the second reason is the curse, and if Genesis chapter 3 is going to be reversed and the physical earth is going to be returned uh, to the way that God has designed it. One of the authors said it's a meaningful culmination of world history. The millennium puts a stamp and an ending on world history. After that, it says the heavens and the earth are are no more, and God then creates a new heavens and a new earth, and we enter into the eternal state. But the millennium is effectively the culmination of world history. It ends there. And that to me is great because we know the ending. We know how this is going to end. And we're going to look at some of the specifics here in a little bit. So it helps us not to fret. It helps us to be able to wait patiently. It helps us to be meek. We don't need everything out of this world that we can get because we are going to inherit physically the earth without the curse. So because of that, a Christian, in his worldview, thinks, I don't need to get every possible last thing out of this. I'm going to get the whole thing uh, in one fail swoop. So that helps our, uh, again, our worldview. And then lastly, the millennium, one of the reasons for the millennium is to fulfill the covenants. So throughout the Old Testament, God made different covenants. He made several covenants with Abraham. Uh, about he and his family, and he made several covenants about the land uh, that we would now call Israel in regards to Abraham and to his descendants. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with David uh, about David's throne and about Jerusalem specifically. We call that the Davidic covenant. And then in Jeremiah chapter 31, which we're going to look at in a minute, he made what we call the new covenant where he's said he's going to take out that heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh. Those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant have all been fulfilled partially, but not fully. They will be fulfilled fully in the millennium. Israel will be restored to the land. Abraham's descendants will be uh, receive their full inheritance Uh, The Davidic throne, the Messiah, will be sitting on the throne of David, ruling in Jerusalem, the physical city on the earth. Uh, And the new covenant, where Israel is restored spiritually, and in Romans chapter 11 talks about it, will be also there taking place. So that's the reason for the millennium. Let's look at some verses here that actually talk about what's going on in the millennium, in that thousand-year 
reign of Christ. So I'm going to try to take most of these out of the book of Isaiah just so we're not flying around too much. And hopefully I'm not going too fast for you guys. There's going to be a couple others, but um, I'm going to just bring out some things that are taking place in the millennium. So let's start in Isaiah chapter 2. What are some things that we notice about the millennium? The first thing is that there is peace. There is no more war or violence. So, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. Probably is familiar to you. But this is speaking of that millennial reign. It says, And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So Isaiah says in the millennium they're going to take military hardware and they're going to refashion it and retool it to be able to cultivate the earth. So you can imagine with the amount of money that nations spend... Uh, that's a pretty remarkable thought to think about. So there will be peace. There will be nations that will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In the millennium there will be peace, which is a wonderful thought to think about. Now, there will be peace in nature. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 6. So there's peace with men, and there's peace in nature. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze, and the young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy nation, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That sounds good, doesn't it? It's interesting that I think God sort of hardwired it into the hearts and minds of even the littlest kids. They love animals, right? There's just something about us that loves that. And here, I can't wait for this, where the, where the, the animal realm and nature itself is restored to the way that God desired it. And you can just walk around in total peace and uh, just be with them. So one of the authors I was reading today said uh, Barnum and Bailey, you know, the old circus. Uh, apparently P.T. Barnum, a lot of pastors would come and visit him, and he would show them this exhibit, and he called it the Happy Family. And he would have a lion and a tiger and a sheep together in like a, in one pen. And the, and he would say, this is our, our happy little family. And the pastor said, well, do you ever have problems? He said, no, other than just having to swap out the sheep every once in a while, we're good. <laughs> And that's the idea. Is we're not in the millennium right now. You put a sheep in a cage with a lion, and it might be all right for a little while, but at some point the lion's going to get hungry. So I've always read this and been fascinated by it. I think the Lord hardwired us to imagine these things and to think about them. But in the millennium, there's going to be peace with men. There's going to be peace in nature. 
Can't wait to see it. There's going to be joy. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isn't that great? I have those two verses underlined in my Bible. For whatever is ahead of us between now and then, at some point this day is going to come, and we're going to be able to look at him and say, there it is. That's what I was waiting for. It says he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be true joy in the millennium. Now, there will be holiness which means to be set apart. Look at chapter 35 of Isaiah. True holiness. Uh, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert." And the parched ground shall become a pool, and a thirsty land springs of water, in the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass with reeds and rushes, and then notice this, a highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for others, whoever walks the road, although a fool shall not go astray, And no lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast to go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy on their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So that sounds good to me. A highway of holiness where there are no unclean shall pass over it. That's good for me. That's my kind of highway. It's a sanctified, uh, holy highway. Now, you can. we're going to come back to Isaiah, but I do want you to look at Zechariah chapter 8. So Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you got to Matthew, went just a little bit too far, right before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1. 
And again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. So Jerusalem itself will be restored. It will be the capital. It says Jesus will be reigning there from Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David. Uh, But there will be holiness there. Now, go back to Isaiah chapter 40. Something else that will be going on in the millennium. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. There will be glory, and everyone's going to see it. And you'll notice several of these verses, if you haven't picked up on it already, the New Testament authors picked up on them and quoted them quite a few times. So you'll pick that up here if you haven't already. So Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low, and the crooked places made straight, and the rough places smooth, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, creation itself is going to be brought back into the way that God had designed it. Now, there's going to be justice. Look at Isaiah chapter 42. To your right, just a little bit, verse 1. So, so far, there's been peace, joy, holiness, glory, and now justice. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fall nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, And that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. So it says that there will be justice on the earth physically. And it's because he's going to restore justice. He is going to be the just one who will bring justice. Now, look at, go back a little bit, Isaiah chapter 11. And I apologize if I'm wearing anybody out, but I want you guys to be able to see this so that I'm not just making it up. Isaiah chapter 11, speaking of justice, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Notice this. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me right about now when you look around at some of the crooked things that are taking place. And again, that's why David says, don't fret, don't get all worked up. Because we understand what we're going to inherit, what is coming our way. Now, there's going to be knowledge in the millennium. Look at verse 6. Just look right down there, chapter 11, or I'm sorry, verse 9. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in the millennium, everyone is going to know the knowledge of the Lord. Now, look at this one's cool. Look at chapter 41. Chapter 41, verse 18. says, I will open rivers in desolate heights. So this is 41, verse 18. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. And I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine tree, and the box tree together, now notice this, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So one of the things that's going to take place in the millennium is God is going to replant in this incredible way and everybody's going to look at it and know God created that. There is no evolution. Uh, God created. People are going to look around at the beauty of nature around us, and they're only going to think the Holy One of Israel has created this. Uh, That, to me, I can't wait. So for all the biology professors and smarty-pants atheists, uh, this is what's coming upon the world. One day, everyone on earth is going to look around and know that it was created uh, by the Lord. Okay, we need to go to Jeremiah chapter 31, speaking of knowledge. And I'm going to cut a couple of these short. But this is going to be something that's going to, something major that's going to happen here that culminates in the millennium, that's begun partially, but is going to culminate in the millennium. So Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. Actually, look at verse 31. 
So Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So let me just stop here for a second. So just so hopefully you understand. When you study through the New Testament and you get to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it says the nation of Israel, because they rejected the Messiah, has been put aside temporarily, and the Lord has begun the work with the church. But chapter 11 says to to the Gentiles, to believers, but don't get all cocky. Because if you were grafted in because they were grafted out, it's much easier to graft back in the real branch when the time comes. And it says, and God will do that. God will return his favor to the nation of Israel and re-graft them in. So that's what Jeremiah here is describing is going to take place completely and fully in the millennium. So it says here, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, speaking of Moses and the Ten Commandments, in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and their sins. I will remember no more. So it says in the millennium, there's not even a need for a teacher. Everyone's going to know that I am the Lord. Pretty amazing. So that is called the new covenant. Now that has been partially fulfilled in our day, right? Jesus said on the last, at the last supper, he said as he gave them the cup, right? Take this, drink of this. This is the new covenant in my blood, right? So it says in Romans chapter 11, because the Jewish nation rejected the Messiah, he gave that then to his disciples and the church began and people began to be born again But that has not been completely put away. He's going to come back to that, and he's going to restore the nation of Israel and complete the new covenant where it will be, as he said in John chapter 10, multiple different flocks. There are going to be the flock of the Gentiles and the flock of Israel. So that will take place as well in the millennium, that the nation of Israel will know the Lord in their hearts, not just the Ten Commandments. Now, I don't have time to go into it. Uh, there is going to be complete health. It says the blind and the deaf are going to be healed. Uh, oh, i got to do this one. Look at Isaiah chapter 61. This is great. Isaiah chapter 61. Now, this one... As Bible students, you need to think about it a little bit. So we're going to read it. You're going to recognize that Jesus quoted this as he took up the scroll in the synagogue. Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound 
and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or literally the day of salvation, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And now look what the the final completion of this, which will take place in the millennium, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness and the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So physically, mentally, it says the Lord will restore people whole uh, and give them beauty for ashes, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, those who struggle now in that day, in the millennium, will no longer struggle. Okay, I'm going to summarize a couple things. There's going to be worship. It says in Zechariah chapter 14, they're going to go up from every nation once a year and to worship the king in Jerusalem. It says there will be prosperity. Now this one to me, I'm just going to read it. You guys don't have to turn there. This is Micah chapter 4, and I like this because I'll tell you why. Micah chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the Lord shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. So, I like that idea of having a vine and a fig tree in peace. No more war. You can just sit there and you got your little orchard right there. And the Lord is there and you can enjoy the fruit of creation and nature. I'm all about it. I'm excited about that. So there will be prosperity in that sense. Uh, and the presence of God will be there. Zechariah chapter 2. Let me just read it to you. Verse 10 says this. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. God will be dwelling on the earth during this time. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. So God will be dwelling on the earth in Israel, specifically in the city of Jerusalem. It says in another place, sitting on the throne of David, uh, ruling and reigning there. So that's, what's gonna, that's a brief glimpse of what's going to be happening in the millennium. So the question is, are we close? Are we close to that? So the call is for Christians to be meek, to have a settled strength or control over themselves, understanding the bigger picture. 
right? So we understand some of the things about the last days, and we understand what the Bible says. But it says the meek, those who have their emotions under control, those who understand, those who walk by faith, shall inherit the earth while God puts a end on world history, as God completes the covenants, as God reverses the curse and brings the earth back to the way that he created it. Uh, are we close to that? And I believe that we are closer than we have ever been. Uh, and some of the things that we've looked around now, we're getting all kinds of questions here about the mark of the beast and the vaccine and all of these different things. So let me just hit a couple things here quickly before we close. And I don't want to take away all the glory of what we just talked about, but here's something to consider. One of the things that I think marks us right now is the idea that they are getting ready to establish a digital currency. Okay? And this is I want to say this in a hopeful a hopeful way. Okay? Now, there are what they call cryptocurrencies, which you'll recognize Bitcoin and Ethereum. Those are purposely not tied to a central bank. And that's why people like them, because they use them as a hedge against inflation, because they're not connected to any central bank or any government. But there's a move right now to digitalize currency. So the digital US dollar, the digital Chinese yuan, all of those things, and to give people a digital ID. And that's why, in my mind, this is the, it's evolving very rapidly. When they do that, and it's very possible that they could do it very soon, they will be able to have my information, your information, everything will be digital. And it says in Revelation chapter 13 that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he puts out a mark. And it says, if you don't have that mark, you cannot buy or sell. Right? Now, I've got, I personally, I don't know about the other guys, but I personally have gotten three or four calls in the last week saying, do you think the, mac, the vaccine is the mark of the beast? I don't think it's the mark of the beast. Because after it says, talks about that and the idea of 666, it says, three angels go out. And it says the third angel goes out in all of the heavens to all of the earth and basically says, if you take this mark, you are crossing a line that you cannot come back from. Okay? So unless you see three angels flying around the earth speaking to eight billion people, then the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. No human being will wake up one day and think, I got duped, they got it in me, and I didn't realize what I did. That's not what's going to happen. That's not what Revelation says. But what I do find interesting is because of what's going on currently, they are quickening or they are ag more aggressively pursuing this idea of a digital currency. And once they have that, once our money is digitalized and we are, all have some sort of ID, then if you do something that they don't want you to do, guess what? You're not going to be able to buy or to sell. Now, that's not the mark, but that means that same technology that Revelation 13 is talking about, that same scenario, is basically here on our doorstep. That's not the mark. The mark will take place after the tribulation starts. We won't be here. The angel will go out. All of those different things. But understand, the very technology that it's talking about is here a digital, not a cryptocurrency, a digital version 
of the central banks, so the, the Federal Reserve, the Chinese Central Bank, those countries want to make their currency digitalized. And as soon as they do that, they will hold more power than they do right now. So that, to me, is very interesting and has certainly woken up my mind. And then, of course, big technology will come to the rescue, uh, and all of these things will precipitate. But so here's how I want to just close this. We shouldn't fret. We shouldn't fret. We should be meek. It says the meek are going to inherit the earth. Does that freak me out? No. In fact, when I read that, I thought, that's crazy because that's what the Bible says is going to happen that the Antichrist is going to come, come along and somehow have enough power so that you're not going to be able to buy or sell unless you take his mark. Well, all of a sudden now that becomes not only a reality, but something they're actively working on. And once they get into place, it'll be something that he, if he comes on the scene, can corrupt for himself and twist into however he wants to use that. So to me, that is very cool. And I'm not fretting about it. Uh, I'm excited about it because that means the rest of the story is right there as well because that doesn't happen until chapter 13. As Pastor Joe's going to look at on Sunday, we're out of here in chapter 4. So uh, if chapter 13 might be right around the corner, then that means chapter 4 might be really close. So we shouldn't fret. We shouldn't lose sleep. uh, But we should get excited and we should understand, I believe, what the future holds And the meek shall literally, physically inherit the earth. Uh, And those are some great promises. So uh, why don't we stand? Let's pray. We'll sing a last song. Uh, Brian and the group come and lead us. So Lord, we just commit this to you. Lord, we thank you for it. Lord, I I believe it's true. Lord, I believe it's coming quickly. Uh, Lord, I believe you're allowing things to... Uh, shift in a direction, Lord, that will bring this to pass. And Lord, we just want to be those who have faith, who have trust, Lord, who are not um, like the one that you said, Lord, who built their house on the sand. And when the storm came, the house fell. Lord, we want to be those who build our house on the rock. So when this storm comes, Lord, we will be with you, trusting hearts, uh, Lord, ministering to our families, to those around us, Uh, We commit that to you. We pray in your name. Amen.